There are fewer than 30 men in the world qualified to drive Formula One. A mere half dozen, perhaps, to win. At this moment, I'm inclined to think you're not one of them. I'm the host of the program. I'll be joined by Nasser Hamid, my co-host. This is podcast number 1009, September 13th, 2023, Nasser. Thank you, sir. And, uh, you know, Mr. Rogers, I am moving this week at the speed of UJE Day, as I was, like you said, OJ'd last week. I went to the doctor and he said, don't push your JPS Lotus to the finish line for a week or two. But happy to report, nothing serious. Hopefully there will be more podcasts in our lifetime. But I can't be a Joe Namath and guarantee we'll be around for number 2000. But that's another story. How is the Duke of Dujon doing on the left coast? And as we all know, misery loves company. Thank you, Nasser. On today's program, Karun Shanduk gets a hot foot at Goodwood. IndyCar finale at Laguna Seca had so many cautions, they had to refuel the safety car. Ridiculous. I've never seen that before. It was awesome. And today is a big anniversary, Nasser. I know you love this period in F1 history, but on today's date... In 2007, McLaren were fined $100 million and stripped of their constructors' points, and I believe that was the year you invested in Kinko's. And of course, ladies and gentlemen, this week's interview, part two of the great Martin Hines interview from 2006, and I must remind everyone, we need your contributions to keep this program up on the servers. Just click on the support F1 weekly tab. You know, you'll want to. NAS, welcome to the studio. I know you've had a rough weekend. You're getting over this big surgical procedure. Hang in there, boy. We all love you. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. What's the uh, record I got was move it to the right. It takes all night, and that's what I'm experiencing. But uh, we will talk about Massa and other things you just uh, discussed more. But fast forward to the weekend, senor. We had the Singapore Grand Prix. I believe it's Singapore Airlines. I think when they started, it was Singtel, their phone company. And this, of course, was Formula One's first night race. The inaugural and very historical event in 2008 made quite an impact on the lives and careers of quite a few players. Morning has broken after 15 years for one of them, and he's now seeking legal action to turn back time. Maybe he should call Shed and ask for a hot date. That's all he will get from this uh, legal issue, I think. And we will keep you updated when the process server rings the bell at Formula One HQ 
in London town. The required letter before the lawsuit has already been sent, I believe. Mr. Rogers, will you agree with me and rest of the mankind that we will have on Sunday 11 in a row? Or will Checo be fully focused in his head and win again like last year? Here's looking at you, Dr. Marco. And speaking of Dr. Marco, he is now being a gem. What got Dr. Marco in trouble was his statement on Austrian network service, which is also owned by Red Bull. He said, and I quote, We know that Paris has problems in qualifying. He fluctuates. He's South American, and his head just isn't as fully focused as Max or Sebastian was. Definitely not the best. Oh, there was an quote there. Definitely not the best choice of words, but it gave new motivation to the PC battalion to come out with their batons demanding his head. The Red Bull Motorsports advisor responded with this statement, and I think we have legal speak here, and I quote, Concerning my remark about Sergio Perez on Service TV Sport and Talk, Monday, September 4th, I would like to apologize for any offensive remark and want to make it absolutely clear that I do not believe that we can generalize about the people from any country, any race, any ethnicity. I was trying to make a point that Checo has fluctuated in his performance this year, but it was wrong to attribute this to his cultural heritage." End quote. What is surprising, and I have said this a few times before, this day and age when you are under surveillance the moment you step out of the house, that people will say, still say things that you know right away will come back to bite you. Here's looking at you, Jimmy the Greek. I have always thought of Sergio Perez as a very committed and hard-working racing driver, and I hope he and Dr. Marco will find some time in the Singapore evening to enjoy Corona con Limon with some flan, items which I enjoy very much, and then we can all go Formula 1 motor racing as a happy family. Once the race is on, Checo will become just the 11th driver in the history of the Formula One World Championship to have 250 starts. Quite an achievement there. Mr. Rogers, is Dr. Marco's apology enough for you to move on or do you want Red Bull to do to him what he has done to many drivers? Get the machete and get the head rolling, rolling on the river. No. We have to be more forgiving. We have to be more loving. Listen, he's a white old guy. We all make mistakes. So, hey, he fessed up to his mistake. He apologized. And hopefully Sergio, who's got thick skin like all of us here at F1 Weekly, can handle it. I thought it was not a big deal at all. I mean, you know, when I'm looking at the internet and I'm searching for Formula One info, I mean, there's a lot of weird stuff out there. I mean, I can't even believe what some people say, some people do. So, yeah, this is mild. It's it's casual, and we know we know the doctor. This is his style. Yeah, and you know this this uh, company and this guy is basically in charge of the junior program. 
they have given opportunities to hundreds and hundreds of travelers from all over the world, India, uh, South America, North America, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, all over Europe, Eastern Europe, Western Europe, and uh, of course, you know, Canada too. And the guy makes one mistake and that's how they're going to judge him for the rest of his life. So I agree with you. F1 fans and media need to be on the George H. Bush program and look for a kinder and gentler nation and paddock. So shall we move on to other items now? Por favore. Okay, more on Singapore race. This is a long race in the heat and humidity. Do you remember some years ago, I think it was Mark Weber's car which had some gearbox issues or some technical gremlins due to magnetic fields of the metro system below? Remember that? Yep. Now, that is something that's going to stop uh, uh, Max. Sebastian Vettel has the most wins here, five. Last year, the race was won by Checo, and the number of wins for Max at this track so far, as you said earlier, Zippo. But Max is not interested in the past history. He is moving forward, making history lap by lap, race by race. He was quoted as saying this will be their toughest challenge to keep winning. The only thing that will surprise me is that instead of winning the race by 30 seconds, he may only win by 15 or 20 seconds. But it's a long, sweaty race. We will have to see if anything will crumble the Dutch cookie. Ombre with the best chance to deny 11 in a row for Max is his, of course, own teammate. But even if Checo takes pole position, the sheer intensity of Max's momentum or a quick thinking pit stop, the DRS also, will make the difference. And once Max is in the lead, it is absolute adios and off we design, amigo. Do you agree, sir? Absolutely. If he takes the lead... It's over for everybody. But, you know, I also expect Ferrari to look pretty strong here. Leclerc has done well at this track, so it could be very exciting. And, of course, those positive-thinking guys and those really good-nature sportsmen over at Mercedes, they believe they might have an edge coming back to Singapore after their misery in Italia. Well, you know, Ferrari won the race in 2019 with Sebastian Vettel, and I wish the Scuderia all the best. But I just cannot see uh, prancing horse jockeys, Carlos Sainz and Charles Leclerc, lassoing the Red Bull number 33 for 62 laps. The second Red Bull, they might be able to do something with it, but number 33 is going to be long gone. And then we have McLaren. Not too long ago, they were able to pull a surprise on all at Monza. And I'm hoping they can pull another surprise sometime during this season. What would be a real come on baby light my fire moment for Lando Norris will be if their first victory of the season comes courtesy of men from Melbourne, Australia, Oscar Piastri. Remember JB getting two wins at McLaren before LCH? Of course, one of my favorite moments in my career. Yes, very true. And speaking of Mercedes, Toto, it's called a motor race, and this shall be your Waterloo moment. Here's looking at you, Wellington of Motorsports. Since then, the Silver Arrows is a broken arrow, and Commander-in-Chief has a wounded knee. 
Their focus is on 2024 and no one is expecting Lewis and Josh to win in Singapore. But for the sake of motor racing, maybe we will see one of them on the podium. Mr. Rogers, have you read anything on the Wikipedia which may suggest Lewis or George may win the Grand Prix on Sunday? No, I have not. Wikipedia is only for those people that are smashing records in Formula One. But it's going to be interesting. They've changed the track a little bit. The buzz is the change is to the detriment of Red Bull. So we'll see. But sometimes that falls flat on everybody's face. But we'll see. I mean, there's going to be talk. There's going to be talk about the 2008 controversy. It's going to be in the background. I think that's going to come to the forefront a little bit more with the pundits. So Singapore is going to be very interesting. And it's a faraway race. They have to continue sleeping and eating on European time zones so they don't get all confused. So people might even say strange things because... They're, they're going to bed right before the sunrise because they don't want to be exposed to daylight. So it's a very strange situation as they go to Asia and all the adjustments for the human body to make. I, I find it intriguing and not only that, but it's the toughest race in terms of physicality. So yes, lots of sweating. Yes, sir. Okay, now next item. When Sainz Jr. and Norris talk, people listen. They are the new E.F. Hutton's of Formula 1. Ferrari driver Carlos Sainz Jr. and McLaren driver Lando Norris have entered a new venture as they are backing and advising a new investment fund. They have teamed up with uh, famous football uh, players, soccer players, and are investing over $50 million in a fund which was launched uh, last week and that will uh, use their advice to seek sports-related targets. So that is very interesting. Uh, maybe, you know, they can invest in an NASCAR team and start going around in circles. That might not be a bad idea. Seb, on a Saturday afternoon, Sebastian Vettel returned to the wheel of a Formula One car at the Nürburgring Nordschleife, reuniting with his title-winning challenger from 2011. That car, RB7, won 12 races, 11 of which came at the hands of Sebastian Federer. It was also on pole position at all but one race during the campaign in which Red Bull secured its second driver's and constructor's championship. And now I'm reading a report later just uh, before the um, podcast started that uh, Sebastian Vettel will be at Suzuka and there will be some sort of an announcement regarding his involvement. So I, I don't think he's coming back as a driver. Maybe some sort of a position with Formula One. Have you read something about this, senor? I have read about it. He could come back as a green advisor to help everybody race. And of course, he's promoting his race without a trace, the biofuel that leaves no carbon footprint. So yeah, he's got a lot on his plate. Vettel is a busy guy. Well, that's good. Okay, Red Bull's Australian driver Daniel Ricciardo will skip this weekend's Singapore Grand Prix, and there is a chance he may have to miss the Japanese Grand Prix, which is only one week after the race in Singapore. Danny Boy hit the barrier at Zandford, and we hope his hand is fully healed and operational as soon as possible. 
This will give two more opportunities for Liam Lawson to stake a claim at one of the two seats at El Fautari for the 2024 season. I do not see anybody among the Red Bull juniors, Liam included, uh, in any junior uh, series that Red Bull has so many uh, drivers who can rattle the cage of Max as a teammate at Red Bull's uh, mothership. So unless and until there is the second coming off, I shall rise rookie a la 2007, the second seat at Red Bull will continue to be an homage to Jim Cramer, Mad Money, House of Pain. Mr. Rogers, you have one mile seven blue chip stock in your portfolio. Would you like to pick a winner against Max Verstappen amongst the driver in junior series? There are none. Not only that, but to be honest with you, and you know, David Coulthard was very eloquent when he talked about how special Max Verstappen is. And there are very few people that could stand up to Max. And unfortunately, as is always the case, we will not see a Fernando Alonso as his teammate or a Lewis Hamilton as his teammate because those are the two guys that could probably get close. But on the other hand, I'm thinking, you know what? Max is so good, he's so young, that he could probably beat everybody as he is doing right now in front of our very eyes. Yeah, and you know, if there is nobody as good as him or most of them are not as good as him, uh, which is normally the case when you have a totally dominant racing driver, that's not his fault. Competition has to rise, and obviously they rise, and halfway through the season, Dr. Marco says, next. So uh, it, I, I'm fully mentally prepared for 70-plus Grand Prix wins and five championships uh, by the end of the 2025 season for Max. And let's see what happens. And I think their domination will come to an end when the blue oval replaces the red circle of Honda at Red Bull. Time will tell. In the meantime, let's enjoy the winning ride. And you know, going back to the Massa situation, he got some bad news delivered today. This whole lawsuit was based on that Bernie Ecclestone recently made a statement that they knew in 2008, which I also knew because it was published news that what I heard that Nelson Piquet Sr., told Max Mosley at the Brazilian Grand Prix that year what had happened and Max Mosley turned around being the good barrister lawyer he was he said we would like your son to sign an affidavit which he did not want his son to do because if he had done Flavio would have fired him right away so but when it became convenient to the PK family they did that now Bernie Ecclestone has come out which I just saw today saying that he do not recall, he's, he's doing a Ronnie, well, I don't recall saying that. Now, somebody will have to go into archives and dig up if he ever said that, and you can always say, I made a mistake. So I think this 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 uh, really weakens Massa's case, and I just don't get it. I mean, for most things, there is, you know, I think in the United States, there is no statute of limitations on murder, but this is not murder. And this is a global arena, not the U.S. Court of Law. So I, I don't think uh, you can just wake up after 14, 15 years and say, oh, excuse me, something happened. Let me file a lawsuit again. So it, it's not good. And even uh, Bernie even said, or is quoted as saying, that all the 
Master Clan want is money. But I think this is not good because he, I think, is president of the FIA Accounting Commission. If he keeps pushing this thing, he was already told not to come to the last race. I, I think he's going to lose all his privileges with Formula One. And he has gone that far mostly because, of course, he was a very good driver, but he was managed by Nicola Todd. And you know, when he was managed by Nicola Todd, you know where Nicola Todd's papa was? Do you remember? My friend who eats at Maxime's every day. Exactly. So that's the way it goes. So let's see what happens uh, when it comes out. Now we come to our Sunny and Share segment. Okay, Mr. Rogers, uh, this is, uh, you know, what Jim McKay used to do at ABC, spanning the globe to bring you constant variety of uh, sports. So we do the same, bringing various variety of motorsports and motorsports action and whatever goes on behind closed doors. So this story, which I, is from a website called f1i.com, which is a French-based website. It's in English also, and I go there regularly. One thing I do like about this website, and it's also true for some other website, they have some very serious senior like reporters, editors, and they write about their experiences. And, and some of that stuff is so fantastic. And so I read this and I thought, you know, maybe our listeners will uh, enjoy this. So uh, this story on F1i.com is uh, titled Swindlers, Fraudsters and F1's Other Dubious Characters. So we'll see how many we can do uh, today. If not, we can pick more uh, some other time. So we shall start with David Team. David Team, he was a mystery man of motor racing and sponsor of Lotus Team through his Essex Petroleum in 1979-1980. He has a video, um, or there's a video on YouTube where the, the launch of the 79-1980 uh, Lotus car is presented. It's a very, very lavish affair, and it just goes to show how much money this guy was throwing. He originally made money from his own industrial design firm before he switched to oil trading, and that's how he was known as American oil trading guy based in France or Switzerland and popped out of nowhere to partner with Colin Chapman's reigning world championship outfit. His luck ran out in April 1981 when he was arrested in Zurich for allegedly defrauding the Credit Suisse bank of $7.6 million. And you know, a couple of years ago, I ran into Mario Andretti at the uh, Atlanta airport and we had a very nice chat and I asked him, you know, if he whatever happened to David Team, and he says, uh, don't know where he is. But Mario did say that he ran into him in Paris a few years earlier. But he's, he was always a very mystery man, kind of like uh, Don Nichols of Shadow. And speaking of Credit Suisse, you know, they went belly up recently and got absorbed by Union Bank of, Union Bank of Switzerland. You know, back in the day, there used to be a saying that if you see a Swiss banker jump, follow him. Uh, you know, with all the issues they've had, I don't know if it's still the case. Anyway, now we move on to another Swiss situation. Joachim Luthi. Uh, he was a banker and he was the savior of the Brabham Formula One team. 
However, things went south when he was jailed for embezzling only $133 million from 1,700 investors. Now, this is where motor racing is the best. He was subsequently released on a $150,000 bail paid by his good friend Mansoor Oje. And Mansoor has passed away, but we all know who that is. Then we come to one of the craziest characters I have seen in Formula 1, Jean-Pierre van Rossen. Eccentric Belgian financier Jean-Pierre van Rossem's claim to fame was the Moneytron financial system, a computer program allegedly capable of predicting trends in the stock market with diabolical precision, a scheme that promised endless returns to investors, and I believe Citibank did a lot of business about a lot of his uh, software or whatever the machines were. Whether the program really worked or not was of no importance. What mattered was that potential investors believed in the concept and many were those who did. His private car collection included owning 108 classic and racing Ferraris. Then he bought the uh, team Onyx Racing and I'm sure you remember Onyx Racing. Very good. Okay. And then he was arrested, of course, in 1991, and he was sent to five years in prison in Belgium for fraud and for running a Ponzi scheme. And I do remember <laughs> Bob Warsha mentioning on one of the racing broadcasts that while he was in uh, jail, he wrote a book on the best brothels in, in Brussels or in Belgium. So quite an active guy. And Mr. Van Rossen passed away from illness in 2018 at the age of 73. And you know, just to show that human nature is the same, now we go to Japan for Akira Akagi-san. The late 1980s, and I'm reading this from F1i.com, the late 1980s saw a flurry of Japanese consortiums eager to achieve a breakthrough in F1. The most well-known group undoubtedly was real estate conglomerate Leighton House, headed by the fanciful Akira Akagi. Portrayed as a benefactor, he brought back the iconic March team in 1987 with cars donning a superb turquoise livery. This was a beautiful car. And you know who designed this? Adrian Newey. Akagi bought the score in 1989 and rebranded it Leighton House ahead of the following season. One year later, the Japanese was engulfed in the Fuji Bank scandal, which involved money laundering, scams, and fraud. The turmoil sealed the faith of both Leighton House and March, which folded in 1993. Okay, now there are a couple of... Um, there is one homie also, unfortunately. And uh, this, is, was an, this was my favorite fraudster. Remember that Nigerian prince, Prince Malik Ado Ibrahim? One of my favorite princes. Yes, and according to the story, he was pretty much responsible for sinking Arrow single-handedly while also triggering the demise of TWR. Remember, they used to have a T-65, um, T-64? Indeed. Born in Nigeria but educated in Britain, the man introduced himself as the descendant of one of the many royal families from the African country. Malik was believed to have made his fortune in telecommunications, but also real estate and raw materials. In 1999, he dangled a $125 million investment offer in front of the Tom Walkinshaw-run Arrows team. 
It quickly turned out that the prince was full of hot air and the Scot would never see any penny of the promised funds. At the end of that season, Malik simply disappeared. In 2010, he was still facing a combined 11-count indictment for fraud. Now, this is in Europe. He crossed the pond, came to the United States, uh, set up a NASCAR truck team, and then he was uh, sued by the driver, and I believe they, he got a judgment. And if I'm not mistaken, Prince Malik uh, did spend some time in Texas where, you know, everything is big. So there you have it. And, you know, hate to say this, but let me finish off this thing on my homie, uh, Mansoor Ijaz. Mansoor Ijaz in Quantum Motorsports' failed F1 venture is still fresh in the F1 paddock's collect collective memory. This guy is based out of Virginia, by the way, and he made a lot of money in uh, Wall Street on Wall Street and is very well connected at the top level of U.S. political scene. The group's idea or make-believe plot was to acquire a 35 stake in Lotus via, via, via a consortium that included in a nutshell an American hedge fund manager, which was him, an Abu Dhabi-based multinational business group and royal family interest of a major oil-producing nation. Ijaz dragged on talks with Lotus owner Gerard, Gerard Lopez and Eric Lux for months, repeatedly promising funds that never actually reached. In 2014, a fed-up Lopez called an end to the Sherrard and Ijaz's farce, and not a moment too soon. Now, you know, one thing interesting, you know, in this country, if you send 10,000 cash wire or whatever, it has to be reported by the to the Federalists. Now, this is, again, based on published stories uh, that came out at that time. He apparently transferred from the U.S. $30 million treasury bills and bonds or whatever that they are serious and once the my, what I heard was documents got there, it dawned on him, oopsie, I did not inform the Federalists, so they had to send the documents back. What the truth is, I really don't know. But uh, I now that I have time on hand, you know, I will try to see if I can reach out to him. I think he hangs out in Virginia. And I don't know if he will be interested in talking, but we can always try. And of course, there is the story of William's story the ZZ Top guy from Bridge Energy, which was the biggest joke, but that's the way it goes. But, you know, this is not the first time something like this has happened, and it's definitely not the last time. So, shall we invite uh, Mr. Martin Hines into the palatial studios now? Absolutely, Nasser. Good thinking. And here is part two of the Martin Hines interview with Nasser Hamid. I used to fly model aircraft. And he was fantastic. You know, when we used to go racing, he'd have these model aircrafts, helicopters, all sorts of that used to fly around. But he was so precise with them because he, you know, I, I believe that to be a, a top racing driver, A, you need the talent, you need, you need balls so that you can handle the speed and whatever. doesn't matter if you've got almost too much aggression because you can always bring people back. They haven't got enough, you can never give it to them. Yeah. So providing they've got enough aggression, they've got a talent, the other most important thing they also need is what we call feel. And this is what probably makes the difference between good drivers and special drivers. And when I say special drivers, there's maybe 10, 15 special drivers ever been in Formula 1. And they're the ones that have that feel. They've just got that feel. And it all comes from karting. 
when you've got the hands on the steering wheel, you've got your feet on the pedals, and you've got your bum in the seat. And it's the, the relationship between those three things, and you get the feel of driving. So. And those drivers, you can take them from one machinery, put them in something else, and they immediately go quick. No matter what you put them in, they immediately go quick, because they have feel, where other drivers have to learn that. Now, who would be some of these ten drivers, please? Who would be some of these ten drivers? I think um, I can only go by sort of people that I, I know. Mansell was one. Not particularly special with lots of finesse, but he was a fighter, and he could fight with a car, and he wasn't scared of it, and he could, he could make it do things very aggressively, which is not necessarily the quickest way of driving, but for him it worked. I think PK was another great driver. Prost was another one of those special drivers. Schumacher. Schumacher in a different way. Schumacher is very clever in the head. Great head. Thinks a race through. Calculates everything. Far more so than Ayrton could do. But Ayrton was the man that drove, drove with his heart. And he had a real big heart and could drag it out. Um, I mean to say, Gilles Villeneuve, fantastic driver. A Lacey on his day, a Lacey, when, you know, a Lacey in the wet had such feel and car control. You know, you mentioned Mansell. Nigel Mansell, I was at Mon- Monza in 1982, and he was driving a Lotus with his Union Jack helmet. Obviously, they didn't, were not competitive that day, and he struggled, and, you know, he kept going until yeah. he won the championship. You know, the best compliment I can... For me, the greatest driver, the ones I have seen since 1973, that's since I've been following. I never saw Clark or Fangio. So since 73, for me, the greatest driver ever would be Ayrton Senna. And I will remember uh, Nigel Mansell as the only driver who gave Ayrton Senna a run for the money on a regular basis. Sure, he was beaten by other drivers once in a while and a few times by pros and whatever. But Mansell was the only guy who gave this guy a run for the money I mean, on a regular basis. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. N- Nigel was someone that... You have to bear in mind that when Nigel started, he started in karting. He used to race with me years and years ago. And when he went on to Formula 3, he had to sell his house. No, he sold his house to get his Formula 3 drive. And he only knew how to fight. And once he got there, he, he, he was never beaten. He would always take the fight. And I mean, I always remember the... the uh, I can't remember the year, but I, I remember at, um, at Monaco, the, uh, the last lap with um, Senna and, and Mansell. What an unbelievable lap. 92. 92, was it? Yeah, I mean, it's fantastic. Fantastic. should remember that because I won the World Championships in 92, so I should remember it in 92. That was a fantastic. Because I think Man- Mansell won the championship in 92, yeah? That is correct. Yeah, and, and Ayrton won it in 91. Right. Yeah. Actually, that race was the first race of that season that uh, Mansell did not win. I think he had gone five races in a row. And I was in California. Unfortunately, Monaco Grand Prix, for some reason, was not shown live. And I was watching CNN, and I saw this new sticker. And I still remember it said, uh, Ayrton Senna snaps Mansell's winning streak by winning the Monaco Grand Prix. I had no idea what had happened in the race till I found out. What a great finish. And also in um, Spain in 1986, Tio Pepe. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, another one. Ex- you know, great. I don't remember it exactly, but I remember. I remember sort of it's coming back, flashes coming back. Now I'm not as well versed as you are in Formula One. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, well, he was just a tremendous fighter. Yeah. And uh, you know, he raced in the United States when yeah. he came after winning the World Championship. He's very well known there. And uh, yes, he has rubbed off a lot of people the wrong way. But so did Senna, and so has Schumacher. So I won't hold that against him. 
in Leone he was called when he was with Ferrari. Now, um, going back to this, having the feel of the car, is this something that can be ingrained in a driver or taught or is this just a natural thing? No, I think it's like anything else. I think it's just either born in the driver or it isn't. I'll, tell you, I'll show you a little example. My son plays a bit of golf and he can just pick a golf club up from nowhere and, and just, he's, he's got feel. And I could try. I could play golf, and I played with him for ten years. And I can, cannot get what he's got. But he's got natural feel. And some drivers have natural feel. One of the ones that I work with that has got amazing natural feel is Gary Pavitt. Gary Pavitt has fantastic feel. You can take him in one vehicle, put him in another vehicle, and he just has an immediate feel. I, you know, I work with you know. Lewis is another one that has got very good feel. Not as good as the feel that Gary's got, I feel. But just every now and again, there's someone special. And when you can take them out of one car, put them in another car. And then, of course, always the great leveller is the rain. And in the wet, Gary was just phenomenal in the wet, in any car. You know, he won the... When he won the Vauxhall Junior Championships in 1999, he had to, at Silverstone, come from 10th on the grid in the last race of the series to win it to win the championship he had to win it and the person who was second had to finish fifth or further back and the person who was actually leading him in the points started pole and Gary started tenth by the end of lap two he was in the lead and I even referred to it in, in, in the press over here it was the best race they'd seen since Senna at 93 in the wet of Donington and it was it, it, replicas of that and he's car control and he, he lapped two seconds of that quicker in that race than anyone else did in the wet in the same equipment. Do you think he will be Alonso's teammate at McLaren next year or will it be Lewis Hamilton or Ra Raikkonen will surprise everybody and stay at... What's going to happen with Raikkonen I really don't know but I, I imagine Raikkonen will probably end up at Ferrari I think if not Ferrari Renault. Don't think he'll end up at McLaren now I think there's too much water gone under the bridge. I also believe that Gary will partner Alonso next year and I'd like to see politically they'll maybe use Lewis Hamilton as the third driver so they can use him for publicity whilst he's having plenty of time testing and I think they'll use De La Rosa as the, as the main test driver for the team uh, I don't see McLaren having two Spanish drivers next year so I think De La Rosa will not be in the equation for the drive I think, you know, he is just a good second driver, and I think a top team like McLaren definitely needs two people who can win races. Yeah, I, I think De La Rosa is a, you know, he's done a fantastic job for, what, four or five years now as a test driver at McLaren. He knows the car inside out, and I think he's a great driver. I don't believe he's a winner. Um, I believe both Pava and Hamilton are winners, and are winners of the future, and I think that McLaren next year will, will see that. Um, I don't, however much they want to bring Lewis Hamilton on, I believe McLaren are sensible enough to realise that he needs a full year's testing in Formula 1 before they put him into that arena. Will they lend him out to another team next year? And maybe even Pavitt, but I don't think so, because I think Pavitt has done thousands of miles in the last six months, certainly. And I believe he did the test at Monza last week, as Raikkonen didn't turn up, which makes you wonder what's happening there. And maybe he was on a boat partying or something. Well, the story is that apparently he had a bad back from the accident the previous week um, in Istanbul. Accident didn't look that bad to have a bad back to me. 
I think his days are numbered, and I would like to see him move on to Ferrari. It's time for you know a new new um, adventure for him, and he's an adventurous kind of guy anyway. I mean, I would love to see next year Ferrari with Raikkonen and and Schumacher. I think that would be enlightening to see who can take the pressure because I'm sure Raikkonen will not want to be second fiddle to anyone, and I'm sure he won't let wouldn't let Ferrari get away with playing him as second fiddle, and I'm sure Michael's never had anyone in the team that has seen themselves as his equal or his better. And I think it would be very interesting. Personally, you know, I will be shocked. I've never seen a good driver. Schumacher definitely is more than a good driver who would want a competitive driver in his uh, as a teammate. You know, Senna did not want Warwick. You know, PK was making fuss about different people. I find it hard to believe that Schumacher and Raikkonen will be teammates. Can you see that as a possibility? Well, if I was running the team, to me that would be the greatest possibility because I look at it in two ways. I, 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 run, my, I run my own racing. I run young drivers. I act as a team manager. But also because I raced in my own team where I used to have multiple drivers, what I actually did in my supercar team, I picked the next two best drivers in the world to run alongside me because I enjoyed the challenge because I knew the only way to keep me winning was to have the best with you and, and if the best are with you you can at least be closer to them and, and, and you can see and find out their weaknesses other drivers look at it they, because to be successful in motorsport one of the other things that you have to have in your makeup, you have to be selfish you have to have a little bit of arrogance because you need to be noticed, you know, you need this little bit of an arrogance. You need to have, you need to be very selfish. It needs to be about you, because no one else is going to help you win. So, because of those traits that you need, a good driver will not want another good driver with him. It's far easier to be number one and treated like number one and get all the best stuff rather than sharing it. So that's why, obviously, you get that. But as a team manager... The best thing I can possibly have is two of the best drivers because they will only take each other forward and forward and forward. They'll just work off each other and try and beat each other. So I'd much rather have first and second out the front than third or fourth. Exactly. You mentioned you had raced in America in go-karts. How would you compare the level of uh, talent in go-karting in the United States as compared to young go-karters in Europe? I think, I think I'm going to say probably the wrong thing here, but I'm going to tell you what I think. I think in America there isn't the level of perhaps expertise in car. See, in America, when, as karting grew, America did its own thing. As always. Maybe, maybe as always. But, you know, let's be fair. You brought karting to the world. We didn't. You brought it to the world. But what happened is, for years and years and years, you stayed on the old chainsaw engines, the McCulloch's, the Homolites, the Spearers, where in Europe we went to the rotary valve engines. And it, it seemed almost as though America wanted to do its thing and let Europe carry on. But the European was the way of, of, of creating a better handling, a better driving machine. And America, I think, lacked behind then. And then when we took Europeans-type racing to America back some 15 years ago now, they had their own slant on it and their tracks were designed to suit the type of racing they did which didn't help the proper European type carts it didn't work so much with them so I feel there's always been this this little bit of drift between America and what happened in the rest of Europe and I think that a lot more importance is maybe put on karting in Europe to create young drivers than than maybe it is in America I don't know because I don't have that much to do with the young American scene whenever I've travelled with, with young drivers to America, it, it always seems to be that 
the drivers that can't quite make and I don't mean this in a rude way but some of the drivers that can't quite make it in Europe because the competition is so high go to America and they seem to make it be it in Atlantics or IndyCars or NASCAR or whatever and it seems that what happens if you can't make it in Europe then the next thing is you try in America which would suggest that the level of competition is not quite high enough in America now talking of America Scott Speed is from the United States uh, his background is go-kart racing did you ever see him race in go-kart and what do you think of him as a Formula 1 driver well you can ask a question of me now is the father of Scott Speed Lake Speed no Oh, right, it's done that then. I've, I've been thinking, all, I, I keep meaning to go up to Scott and say, is your father Lakesby? Because I used to race with Lake many years ago. Um, and I haven't seen Scott racing carts. So, to be honest, I can't give any, any opinion on that. Uh, your thoughts on how he has done uh, this year, given what, you know, a lot depends on what you're driving, what he has to work with. How do you look at him as a Formula 1 driver so far? I think as a young Formula 1 driver, I think he's done, he's done pretty good coming into, into a European market, mate. I think, and I don't know him, so it's very unfair of me to say, but I think at times he's a little bit over-arrogant, perhaps. Uh, I, I certainly know things that he said to the press at times have not gone down too well in Europe. But a lot of that is because it's an Ameri- the way Americans do it and the way Europeans do it is maybe somewhat different. Not saying one is right and one is wrong, but there's just a difference there. So I think he's been in a different environment. And I think, to be honest with you, I think he's done pretty well, really. That's good to hear. In, you know, you've been involved in karting all your life, basically. What, how many years do you think a person, or at least you know, some people start at 10, some 9, some 14, till what age should a young driver stay in karting before he goes into car racing? It all depends on the driver. And I'll tell you, I'm the perfect person to ask this question. Because over the years I've worked with, 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 with David Coulthard, who went into single-seaters at... He went in at 18. Didn't want to. Wanted to stay in cards. But his dad, and, and probably myself to a degree, talked him into, you know, the cars was the right way for him. There's also been this thought over the years that people like Truly and Fizzy Keller and so on have come from karting, stayed in there till their 20s, gone into Formula 3, seasoned in Formula 3, straight into Formula 1. I don't believe that is the right way because I've always thought that carts, if you race carts, most drivers these days start at eight years old. By the time you're 16, you should have done everything possible that a cart can teach you, you would have learned. And I believe at 16, you should make the transition into single-seaters. But I also think you should do it very slowly. And you should start at the bottom round of the ladder, maybe do two years, learn it without wings, without slicks, Old Formula Fords, you know, with, with no wings on them. Difficult cars to drive. Learn about driving a car with mechanical grip before you get involved in wings. Because that confuses things. And when it comes to later on in your career, you want to pull back on that mechanical knowledge you know about a car to set a Formula 1 up properly. Given the, the way the series are these days, what would be the series you would recommend somebody to go from go-kart to uh, motor racing? Well, this is a very, a, another pretty loaded question, really, because about four years ago, I built my own formula called the Zip Formula, which was a 1600cc Formula Ford type class with a chassis design so you couldn't interlock wheels. It had pods designed on it so you couldn't interlock wheels. It allowed you to race very close, very safely. No wing, had wings on it for appearances' sake, but they did nothing. No downforce whatsoever. They just looked pretty and looked like we presume a Formula One car should look. Had treaded tyres on them, 
and uh, like the old Formula Fords did, but you could at least drive a car sideways and whatever. And it, and it worked fantastic. And in actual fact, that, that formula is now running in Bahrain. And I'm working with very high people in motorsport at the moment to introduce it to the emerging nations as an entry-level formula. Because you, it was built so that you could enter the formula and race the whole championship for £30,000, which is a lot of money. We're talking sort of, what, what's that, $50,000? It's still a lot of money, but you learn all the circuits and you learn how to drive a car properly. And the driver that won the last championship went straight out and won the Formula BMW. And now he's doing very well in Formula Renault. So he learned a lot. I believe any formula that is an inexpensive entry-level formula, I believe you do not need wings for your first year or two years. You need to learn about mechanical grip of cars and how a car works and feel the car run. It's about this feel again. You need to feel the car under you. Take all the drivers we're talking about, Schumacher, Senna, whoever it may be, Prost, uh, Rosberg, whatever, whatever. They all did Formula 4 for two or three years. Not just for one quick year, then Formula 3, then Formula 1. They did two, three years without wings. They learned about it. Alonso did the same thing in Spain for a couple of years. For we heard about him when he went from karting, mm-hmm. went to Spain, did a couple of years, an entry-level formula, like Formula Ford. Formula Nissan. Yeah, all sliding about. Yeah. He learned about field. You know, I've seen, and I'm sure you've seen a lot more than I have, you talk about um, that the young kid wants to be a race car driver, not that his father or family. And I've seen it, you know, in the short time I've been going to races, uh, there's a lot of expectations. Like somebody made a comment to me that this guy wants to live his life through his son. How much damaging is a push from a father to a kid? And it gets pretty intense. Yeah, and you have to bear in mind that I'm a father that has got a kid at the moment racing with Panos in the British GT, and Gary Pavitt has really been like a second son to me because I saw him racing at nine years old on a wet, horrible race meeting, and I thought, this boy is something different. And from there on, I've sponsored him, managed him up until today, and his father still runs my Young Guns team here. So so I've had, like, two sons. But I've only ever done it because they wanted to do it. I I would never push them. You can't push someone to... You know, there's fathers that you see them, and they say, well, why didn't you do this, and why didn't you push harder? Because if he wants to push harder, he will push harder. All the good kids, you never have to tell them to push on it. They all push as hard as they possibly can. If you have to tell them, if you can see that he's lacking in areas and you have to push him forward, you can't be doing that because it's this young boy's life or young girl's life. And they know what what they're happy to do and you have to be happy to do what you're doing. So I, I think it's very, you know, I think if he wants to do it, then... Back him to the full, give him everything you possibly can to make his dream come true. But if he doesn't want to do it, he's only doing it because father wants him to do it. And I have drivers at the moment that I'm involved with that I know are doing it, their father wants it more than they do. And when that happens, they'll never make it because they haven't got that killer thing that they need for their own, for their own sake. Yeah, the burning desire is missing. You've got to have burning desire. Who do you think will, will win the World Championship, Schumacher or Alonso? God, that's a loaded question, isn't it? I think Alonso is probably going to hang on. And I'm not a, Schumacher, a mad Schumacher fan, but I'd love to see him win it. Because I think his fight back has been fantastic. And we know he pulls lots of tricks like he did at Monaco this year and whatever. And, and I think 
best sportsmanship is, is the worst thing in the world. But you have to bear in mind the differences between him. He wants it. So he pulls a trick like that. And, and whilst it is not right and it can't be condoned, I understand why he did it. Me too. It was wrong. It's against the, you know, it's against the spirit of, of the sport we're racing in. But he wants to win. And, and you know, a winner's a winner. Oh, yeah, he's going to do what it takes. There's no question about yeah. it. And I'm not sure that Alonso would think quite like that at this stage. I, I, Alonso, I don't think, would have done what Michael did in Monaco. But that gives Michael the edge to me. Your favourite Formula 1 track? Oh, my favourite Formula 1 track. I said, uh, it, it's different in the way that I look at tracks and, and relate to them to tracks that I've driven. And I've driven most of the tracks around the world. And the track I always used to love was the old Silverstone Grand Prix circuit going back to the mid-80s. That, to me, was a great circuit. But I was very successful on it, and I loved it, and I just loved the place. So you, you become biased. Mm. I have to say, I thought a very good F1 track, I think Bahrain, Istanbul, I think all these new tracks are fantastic today. And they, 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 they set a completely different level for all the other circuits to follow. My question, um, I should have clarified a little bit more, was more as a driver. Yeah, new facilities are incredible. You know, China has taken it to another new level. Yeah. And I'm sure some, if new one comes in Kazakhstan or some other rich, yeah. uh, oil-rich country, it will take it to another level. But my question was basically more into, like, as a driver's track, you know, when you're driving it, as a challenging track. Challenging. Well, as a challenging track, I suppose you'd have to probably say Spa is the one. Yeah. Oh, Rouge and, you know, I mean, it's just unbelievable. Um, and I think that, is, when you consider the speeds that these drivers are doing, um, that would probably, to me, be the track, I suppose, Spa. That's almost everybody's favourite. Yeah. Uh, we, we spoke to a lot of people last few months, and uh, the only person who said no burgering was Sir Jack Brabham. But, you know, he has the right to his yeah, opinion. Yeah, yeah. Uh, finally, do you have a message for listeners of F1 Weekly? We have listeners all over the world. Well, all I say to F1 Weekly is remember that all these kids out there, now we're at this European Championship here in Belgium today, and it started off with 300 young junior drivers entered it, and we've ended up with 30 here in the final. And of that 30, there's probably 10 of them that will be Formula 1 stars of the future. And, I mean, karting is really about breeding all your Formula 1s, and we know it's the same with IndyCar and NASCAR. If you look at all the drivers, nearly everyone in the world starts off in karting. So I'm very happy that I'm sitting here watching competition at this level because these will be the champions of the future. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Martin Hines, for talking with F1Weekly.com. Nass, back to you. Well, you know, I think that should do it unless you have some questions or I have to ask your favorite who's going to win in uh, Singapore after Fernando takes the checkered flag first. Absolutely. Fernando will win this race. There's going to be some rain. Max will DNF in a puddle of perspiration. And there you have it, Nass. Of course, Lewis Hamilton will be on the podium to become more cheerful. I'm really hoping that Mercedes is somewhat more competitive next year. Because if not, we got to listen to this all over again for another year. I'm really tired of Toto crying. And I know Lewis Hamilton is trying to keep it on side, but I know it's tough. So why don't we just, all of us, to just root for Fernando? Because he's not very political. You know what I mean, Nasser? Oh, no. He's just minds his own business, doesn't get involved in any affairs. Nothing sticks to him. Exactly. He's sort of like 
the Aaron Rodgers, oops, maybe not. I mean, did you see that game with Aaron Rodgers and the, and, and the New York Jets? Uh, no, sir. I was busy listening to Benny and the Jets. It, it was awesome. Four plays. Down goes Frazier. Okay. Yeah, he's out of the season, I guess, right? Completely. I, I just couldn't believe it. I mean, the big intro, he ran with the flag. and I mean, it was 9-11. I mean, it was it's this huge thing. Four plays. He's out. Off to retirement. So, you got to love the world of sports. It's a tough world out there. So, yeah, we got a great race. Singapore is going to be awesome. Just the political atmosphere alone, you can cut with a knife. So, there's going to be a lot of subplots, sub-stories. And don't forget, Nass, we're going to Vegas pretty soon. It's coming up. So, man, we've got a lot to talk about in the near future. So, Nass, keep up the good work. I hope you heal well. We'll talk to you next week. Yes, sir. I'm very pleased to remind everybody again that F1 Weekly Podcast is now available on web radio in the U.S. through the uh, Performance Racing Network. And that's the right name, right, Mr. Rogers? I believe so. Performance Motorsports. Yeah, Performance Motorsports Network, and they're also known as Scorpion Radio. And we are also available on web radio in Chollyol, England, which is quite an achievement for F1 Weekly after completing 1,000 podcasts. And this is available on downforceradio.com. And they play our podcast every day, every weekday at 5 p.m. British Standard Time. So please check it out and drop us a line if you like us, if you love us, or even if you hate us. That wouldn't surprise us. Keep up the good work, Nas, for that pumped-up attitude. So yes, I want to thank everybody who listens in the U.K. and all over the world Keep it up. It just means you have good taste. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Juan Pablo Montoya, and you're listening to F1 Weekly.